Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey team, welcome to A Thing or Two, the deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. We are taking a few weeks off from recording new episodes and we are rerunning some of our favorite apps from the recent past. Greatest hits, if you will. We hope you love them. And if you do, maybe take a deep dive into our archive. We have been doing this thing since 2015, so there is plenty to keep you busy. And if you want even more, head to a thing or two HQ.com to subscribe to our much loved Monday newsletter and to sign up for our membership program, Secret Menu. For four bucks a month, you'll get one additional newsletter from us every week, chock full of the things we cannot shut up about and will not shut up about. And as always, to share your thoughts on this episode or anything, really leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463 or DM us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. This is our first time recording in quarantine. Yeah. It's thank weird, God huh? We, well, we recorded... Thank God we've been Zooming a lot, you and yeah, I. thank God we've been Zooming a lot. Thank God we pre-recorded a bunch of episodes on like the last day that it was considered safe or that people were going outside, basically. Um, yeah. So we didn't have to rely on this newfangled setup until now. Yeah, basically like that that we recorded, then the NBA was canceled and that was it. <laughs> and we were like, well, if the NBA isn't playing, we are not podcast recording. Nope, that that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, we, we hope that bring... this sounds okay. Yeah, oh my gosh. And if it doesn't, well, you know what? It will someday. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll keep on working on it. Um, we are going to bring on a guest in a couple minutes to talk about a wonderful new book called This Is Big by it's Marissa Meltzer. It's a really Meltzer. good book. Um, you should all read it. Um, yeah. But in the meantime, we want to talk about something that I think a, a big campaign that I think a lot of people are going to miss out on because there's there are other um, more important, more pressing things happening in the world. But I don't want this to go totally uh, undigested, unacknowledged. Yeah. yeah. In February in New York, um, a campaign launched by the title of Billy Never Idols. I-D-L-E-S. Yeah, Billy Never Idols. But the face of it is Billy Idol, I-D-O-L. And so the idea behind this campaign is that Billy Idol, rock star and environmentalist, according to all of his acknowledgments on NYC.gov, doesn't want you to idle your car or your truck or your vehicle. Honestly, Erica, everything about this campaign is so deranged. And 
I think there are so many valid complaints to be lodged against Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, but this is like, has shot right to the top for me. It's so deranged. Billy Idol isn't even a New Yorker. No, you can tell because when he does the ad, he sounds as British as he always does, which is incredibly British. There's a line in the ad that is, I mean, bollocks, are you trying to choke us all? Bollocks is in the ad for this Billy Never Idols campaign. I think even his main U.S. residence is in L.A. I just, I hate everything about it. It's so insane. I also hate that Bill de Blasio seems to really have like patted himself on the back about this and did a whole effing press conference and press release around this thing. Because Claire, he booked a major celebrity to do a (laughs) campaign around vehicle idling. Okay. Which is like, is polluting, is a problem. And apparently also according to this website, idling has in New York has been prohibited since 1972. But nobody knew until Billy Idol started. (laughs) 48 years. Happy 48th anniversary to not idling in New York. I'm also really interested in what the follow-up campaigns to this are. It's like Johnny Rotten on composting (laughs) or Iggy Pop on recycling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really... I, I. I would like Kim Gordon to have an opportunity in all of this. We'll have um, to think on what hers, what hers. I know be. it's not as obvious. It does feel like there's an, there is something for Harry Styles to do. Like something about style, like X, Y, Z never goes out of style. You know, idling mm. never goes out of style. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's supposed to, I think that's what we're trying to get. At here. <laughs> I did learn from Billy Idol's Wikipedia page that his name was, came from the fact that a school, teacher described him as idol idle so it does feel like there's precedent for this it doesn't it doesn't excuse it it's still there you're saying he's been looking to apply this for like decades like half a century basically Mm -hmm. he's been looking for a good opportunity to be billy idle yeah interesting that's right okay um well i guess should we bring on marissa yeah yeah we should Sorry, I just feel like I could talk about it for longer, but I suppose you're fair to, to, to end this. I'm Arielle Laurie, host of the Blonde Files podcast, where every Wednesday I cover all things wellness. After nearly dying from drugs and alcohol six years ago, I've been on a mission to live my best, most fulfilled life, and I'm sharing everything with you. From how to achieve optimal health, well-being, and fulfillment, to the best beauty tips and even cosmetic procedures, I cover it all with raw, candid conversations with experts and inspirational guests. You can follow along with everything over on Instagram at Ariel Laurie, and make sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. We are here with Marissa Meltzer, who wrote the book coming out today, today, tomorrow. Oh my gosh, this week. This is big, how the founder of Weight Watchers changed the world and me. Um, We've been dying to talk to Marissa about this book for so long. In fact, that we all jumped through the hoops of figuring out uh, like, like how to, how to record do- a three-way <laughs> podcast remotely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which required more hoop jumping than I think most, most of us were prepared for, but that's how strongly we feel about it. That's this. right. We've all got our headphones and our mics. Hi, Marissa. Hi. Thank you. I think we all have the same mic, which feels really... Oh my God. The, the mic club. Yeah. The yeah. Samson <laughs> podcast pack. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Marissa, um, will you tell us what your book is about? It's about the woman who founded Weight Watchers, uh, Jean Nidich, and it's also about my own torture lifetime of dieting. And your experience with Weight Watchers. 
And my experience with Weight Watchers. Yeah, it was, I didn't know someone had invented Weight Watchers um, until I read Gene Neidich's obituary five years ago and um, was sort of like, who is this demon who I can blame <laughs> for my lifetime of problems? I'm going to read about her and then really felt this kind of connection with her and was just very intrigued by what I perceived as kind of a Cinderella story. Like she lost all this weight. She became a millionaire. She moved to Brentwood, a neighborhood we're all very fond of. <laughs> very and fond. Very fond of. Quite aspirational, all of yeah. them. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to say I happen to own a Brentwood Country Mark baseball hat. <laughs> Me, Timothy Chalamet, and the Roan Mazer household. That's right. Um, and Jean anyway, would have. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And so I was intrigued and also in my late thirties and I had this like feeling as I was heading towards turning 40 that my mantra just kept feeling like I'm too old for this shit. Like Mm. certain things like maybe, um, I don't know, like a, a friendship that was really not so much a friendship or like, or just like certain clothes or vacation destinations or, you know, my relationship with my body. I just felt this sense of like certain things I had kept around long enough or had sort of been a problem for me long enough that it was time at this sort of middle age-ish point in my life to kind of reckon with them in a real way. What made you realize you liked Jean and that she wasn't a demon? Well, you know, I liked her hair and the way that she looked. <laughs> Valid. I'm, maybe I, I'm just that vain. And um, I liked her intense point of view. She had a real sort of no-nonsense um, voice to her that was so different from this kind of touchy-feely wellness view of dieting and eating that we all have right now. She was really just sort of like, put your foot, your fork down and, you know, eat the cantaloupe instead of the cake. And um, I don't necessarily want someone to say that to me, but I was really um, like, how did, how did she get there? And who was she? And, you know, just like anyone, she was very human. She was a woman who struggled with her weight and managed to um, succeed and lose a lot of it. But also with that came a lot of compromises and and sort of sadness too. I think the more that I learned about her, the more I realized her life, like anyone's life really, it was is not just a perfect, you know, American dream scenario or, or fairy tale. She was also largely written out of the company's history or, you know, it took you reading her obituary to even realize that this had a female founder who had started this thing herself. Absolutely. And, you know, I am the kind of person who should have known about her. You you guys are too. And we're in this moment where stories about um, women who've been lost to history are, are really popular, whether it's hidden figures or like the overlook no more obituary section in the New York Times. And I thought, oh, it's, it's even weird that Weight Watchers doesn't try to celebrate her because they have this really extraordinary <laughs> story of someone who founded a multi-million dollar company. A woman who founded a multi-million a, dollar a, company. A, a, yeah. a woman in middle age who did yeah. this, who wasn't college educated, didn't come from money, and um, who still had to get you know, her husband's signature when she signed her first lease. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you write about in the story that probably points to why they don't 
tell that story more is just how much the Weight Watchers um, sort of philosophy and narrative has changed over the years as America's relationship with dieting has changed. And I wonder why you felt like now was a good time to write this story about her. I think that we're all getting increasingly smart about dieting and that we understand scientifically that it's difficult. And we also understand enough about capitalism that we know that companies like Weight Watchers don't exist just to like help us achieve our better selves, that they're making money off of this it's struggle. It's like high-minded pursuit. Yeah, they're not an NGO, you <laughs> no. know, like um, they are making money off of repeat customers. Yeah. Um, or as Mindy Grossman, who's the current CEO said, you know, their competition is people who think they can lose weight on their own. Right. And so I think this moment that we're in where wellness is really incorporated itself into even our diet culture where, you know, we talk about cleansing and eating clean and, you know, um, intermittent fasting and um, whatever else, when really it's all just dieting. And I kind of thought that it was a time to really look at how we got here. Mm-hmm. And maybe what, for some clue to where we're headed. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> what is your general take on sort of where Weight Watchers is now and and how it's changed since the the gene times? It's fascinating in the book, I think, to read about Weight Watchers evolution because they really are trying to keep up with the times, whether it's creating their own kind of like aerobics program or a talk show or kind of riding the like low fat wave. And now, you know, in that tradition, Weight Watchers has in recent years rebranded itself as WW. And you can Because the get word these... weight is not a word that right, feels it's like right KFC. in like a wellness yeah. conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. It's KFC. So we're just <laughs> WW, which doesn't roll off the tongue super well. The people who work there call it dub dub. Um, <laughs> that's just an FYI. And uh you know, I, there's wellness wins, which are these sort of like skee-ball ticket, like points you can get to redeem stuff like a coupon for Rent the Runway or mm. um, merch, like a hat that says, what's your why? Like stuff that I would never want. Like Starbucks points kinds of things. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, like loyalty points loyalty, sort of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Sephora and points, I think maybe. they yeah. probably like the conversations that they are, you know guiding for the instructors to have are probably a little more touchy-feely about, you know, incremental weight loss or like, you know, success beyond the scale, that kind of thing. Like lifestyle changes. and Exactly. And, you know, whether or not that's successful, my guess would be no, partly because we can all see through it. And also, Mm -hmm. I don't think that people are going to go to Weight Watchers for anything other than just wanting to lose some weight. And so, you know, my advice would be, I think they should have a more of a return to like Jean and her era. Like how refreshing would it be if she, her image was like the spokesperson again, like this like cool female founder from the sixties who was like kind of politically incorrect by today's standard, who was just like, you know, telling you it's not rocket science and that you just shouldn't eat the birthday cake. Like, those are hard truths, but also <laughs> kind of what it takes if you actually want to lose weight successfully. You have to make, you know, real life changes, which 
isn't particularly fun. And, and I don't know, I, I think that they're, their DNA, to use some corporate speak, is like community. And I think that they should um, get back to that, you know, that sense that like you can put people who um, all struggle with their weight in a room and they might come from very different circumstances, but they do have a lot of significant things in common. I like there's a line in the book where you talk about um, that experience of being in a room and realizing that these are people you wouldn't necessarily interact with in your day-to-day life. They're outside of your bubble and that they make you feel like you're not special, which is sort of the goal, which is like the good thing to be able to relate to people who aren't like yourself in this context. Yeah. I mean, I'll be frank. It's humbling. I do like to think I'm special and I do have, (laughs) yeah, right. That's true. And I have the kind of job that's given me access to like fancy diet doctors, you know, literally once the client after me was Jake Gyllenhaal. I too want to think that I need Jake Gyllenhaal levels of service and treatment and that that person can give me um, some kind of tricks, you know. And the truth is that there is no silver bullet secret, you know, message to be passed on to how to lose weight and that it's something that you know, you can struggle with whether you want to pay $10 a week for it or $1,000 a week for it. And it is a good life lesson to have to hear why other people are doing things and that their reasons might be very different and even, you know, a little weird for me, but they're, it's, it's worth it for, you know, making you a, a sort of a, I don't know, more emotionally in touch person at the very least. So you've written about diet and body before, but obviously this is a much bigger deep dive. And what was that experience like for you? Um, Just sort of like unearthing things with your, in yourself, they're having to, you know, think about these things in ways that you maybe hadn't or didn't want to. I didn't love it. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, a lot of it was pretty painful. If I'm being honest, I, I didn't write the book in sequence. I wrote all of the gene parts and all of my parts separately. And so I wrote the gene half of the book first, partly because I just thought it would be easier and less a kind of an emotionally fraught experience. And then the parts about me, I think I just had kind of made this decision that the only way that this book was going to work was that if I rejected coyness and was brutally honest with how I felt about everything. And that wasn't always the most fun thing to do. I I don't love having like my weight in numbers appear in a book, but I've also read plenty of books about people's weight where they don't ever once say how much they weigh or they never once talk about how they really eat or the kind of food they missed. You know, it's easy to glide over your weaker moments or, you know, not say how you really feel because feelings are super complicated. And um, I just didn't let myself do that. And so it's hard. I mean, even just, you know, knowing friends like you guys read it, it's weird because in a sense, we're all really close and you know me better than a lot of people do. And also you're reading this thing and reading about things that you don't know about me. And I'm sure that feeling is the same for, you know, my parents and perfect strangers. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a weird 
I don't know, maybe even like a narcissistic or like a bit of exhibitionism in the decision, but it's, you know, that was, that was how I thought it would work. I don't think it's narcissistic. I think it was incredibly brave. And I'm glad that you brought up the friend thing because it was something that was a fascinating experience for me as your friend to read. And like you said, like, we're really close. I've known you for a long time. And there was stuff in this book that I didn't know. And we, you hadn't articulated to me. And what was so interesting, what I realized about it, because a lot of what you reveal, you reveal through conversations with various friends as you like tell it in the story. And I thought we all have friends that we talk about different stuff with, right? Like I'm really close with two different people, but tell them totally different things. Absolutely. Sure. And this was this experience of like hearing stuff that you and I don't normally talk about. Um, and that's such a brave and scary thing to do. And did you just make the decision? Like you would just put it out there and let the people in your life react to it as they would, or was there an instinct to like warn people or what, what was the thinking? It didn't warn anyone. Yeah. And, you know, as I, as we record this, my parents still haven't read it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm still haven't gotten the brunt of reactions, you know, just a, a few people of the hopefully thousands, millions <laughs> that will read this book, billions. you know, have, yeah, billions, billions, billions. Billions, have <laughs> you know, have read early copies. But, you know, I think part of it is like, we all compartmentalize. We have our friends that we talk about different things with. Mm-hmm. And part of it is like, it's not so much that I'm hiding or aligning what I talk about when I'm with you. It's also just that as friends and as we get older, we don't see each other all that often. And mm-hmm. our time is so precious that we often want to talk about stuff that's joyous or just like salacious or just mm-hmm. fun. And so it's rare that like in the, I don't know, once a month that we're all able to get together, I'm going to be like, you know what we should talk about? Like the thing that's the most painful and complicated part of my life, like, or something. I mean, I know that there are probably other ways around it, but it is really, it's hard to be, to even start that conversation, especially for a certain kind of person like me who I have a lot of friends. I have some people I talk about those things. I have a therapist, you know, like I journal, I have all these kinds of outlets and, um, I think, yeah, in this book, I just decided that if I'm going to write about this, I want you to know me. Like, I want it to be as illuminating to you as it is to someone who's never met me before. I think something that's really important too is that by sharing these very particular moments and these very, you know, particular feelings that you've had or feeling times where you felt like you're not getting to sort of like live the life that you want to be living um, and having to make certain food choices. That's when it's super, super relatable too. And that's when mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we've talked about that I haven't had the same experience you have necessarily in going through the world, but we're all people with bodies who certainly have a lot of insecurities about them um, and have had a lot of these like feelings um, and having those things surface in really specific ways makes all the difference. Yeah, I hope that it's something that can start conversations, you know, it would make me feel better if I had more friends talk about the realities of their bodies. And, you know, it, it might be surprising because it is easy if you're someone who's struggled with their weight in kind of a more traditional, you know, like I am overweight on a BMI chart way to talk about someone who wears like a size six about their struggles, because in some ways it's the same struggle. Like we're all tormented by the same things. That and was- also I hope 
that having these kinds of super, sorry, Claire, vulnerable conversations can also just open up to being more honest with each other about whatever their sort of, you know, bet noir or secret shame or just, you know, what's hard for them. I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of it for me was this realization that you and I haven't had the same sort of like day-to-day realities around weight and weight loss, but I related to almost everything you said about how this has sort of like dominated your thinking and and the various conflict and turmoil and the cognitive dissonance around all of it. It all felt very relatable. And I felt like you, you articulated a lot of the things that I didn't even necessarily realize I was grappling with in thinking about my own weight. And one of the things that you speak to, um, especially sort of in the second half of the book, is this sort of tension between, well, the sort of three things, right? Like feminism. And you wrote a really, a, a couple years ago before this book, you wrote a really wonderful article for Elle about how dieting made you feel anti-feminist in some ways. And that, that theme comes up in the book in a way that mm-hmm. I think is really compelling. And then the other issue being that there's this whole body acceptance movement that we all want to get behind. And yet, what does that mean if you want to celebrate body acceptance, but you also want to lose weight? You also want to change yours. Yeah. Yeah. It, to me, it felt, it it made me feel more furtive and more sort of torn. It's just another way to feel like you're failing as a woman. And I don't think that's the original intent of body acceptance, um, or feminism, but, you know, it's hard to reconcile living in this world and feeling affected by it. And, you know, dieting is easy in a sense because it's something we all default to, but it also gives you this kind of like checklist and forward motion. Whereas if you want to just, you know, accept yourself or love yourself, there's a lot of things in the book that where there are exercises that I do, but it's like, good luck on changing your emotions. It's really hard. And it's something that I think if it can be done, is very gradual and takes a significant amount of time. And it's so much easier to do that, you know, to default to dieting than wanting to do that or to change society. Um, When you say forward motion, there was a little section of the book that I wanted to share that spoke to me so much, um, which is, I like a plan. I thrive on forward motion. A diet isn't just a diet, but a fantasy, an investment in the future. Diet culture and weight loss is directly related to the Protestant work ethic in America. I wasn't raised Protestant. My mom decided at some point in the late 80s she was Wiccan, and my dad told me his religion is big, sir. But I was raised with the concept of always working. If you weren't in school, you were interning or had a job. Productivity was its own prize. Man, that speaks to me, Marissa. Um, and I th- <laughs> oh, I'm crying a little bit. Oh my God, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> it's not at so, all. So, I mean, it, it is this, I, I think that is something I've always felt of this idea of like chasing something and like always being working on something and like why not try to make it better and why not try to do this. And I do think the times in my life that I have been the happiest with my body were probably the times in my life when I was like saddest about other things where it was exerting mm-hmm. some amount of like control um, because everything else felt out of control, which I think Claire is a conversation you and I had at mm-hmm. some point mm-hmm. um, that, you know, being depressed or being anxious or being um, whatever would fuel either like not eating or like purposely sort of like managing food intake or whatever 
um, mm-hmm. as a way of being like, I can control this thing, even though everything else is a fucking mess. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's the classic narrative about, say, eating disorders. But yeah. I also think, you know, the three of us and many women that we know are really ambitious, right? And so it's easy to be ambitious about every part of your life mm-hmm. and your body being one of them. Like, yeah. it's hard it's hard for me to imagine a self where I turn off that desire to be better and to keep working and to just let myself be. Maybe I'd be happier, but it also doesn't feel realistic. The quote that, that really speaks to this from the book, you said, our culture veers wildly between impossible standards of beauty and seemingly impossible standards of acceptance to terrible effect to almost everyone. Is weight not just another version of the tiresome conversation about whether, whether women can have it all? Um, yeah, (laughs) big time. (laughs) What do you think people who are sort of at the forefront of this body positivity movement, what do you think their reaction to this will be or should be? Does it, because I didn't feel like it was a takedown of body positivity. I thought you, but I thought you pointed out what some struggles are with it that I don't think we always talk about, which is that it's not really that easy to just say, I love my body and I'm not going to say mean things about it. Even if it's easier to say, I love your body and I'm not going to say mean things about it. It's just like another Mm -hmm. piece of pressure. It's another thing we're supposed to Mm -hmm. be doing that we're probably failing at. Yeah. And it's always easy to treat someone differently than, you know, you treat yourself. I don't know. It's definitely not a takedown of body positivity, but I think of it as just a new way forward, me in that forward motion, just a different path. I think I felt really stuck in this binary of either I was dieting, which meant that I was trying to change myself because I hated myself, or I was trying to accept how I looked, which was a little bit of a defeat and also was being a good feminist. And it was like, I was in either one camp or the other and that they were both sort of the antithesis and that any kind of conflicting feelings I had just made me feel like I was a failure, that I was sort of, you know, doing it all wrong. And so I want the book to just be a a suggested way for all of us to move ahead, accepting that you're probably always going to want to change and you may want to lose weight and you might have all different reasons for that. And also that we live in a culture that has um, pretty ridiculous standards for beauty and that we should also change that too. I don't know how people who are advocates of you know body positivity will react to it. I think that my hope is that they'll read it and that they'll understand that it's nuanced. I did have some initial pushback from people who, you know, didn't even want to get advanced copies because the word Weight Watchers was in there mm-hmm. and, you know, or people who um, are trying, you know, who say that they're committed to body positivity as part of their, you know, brand and, my, I try to just, you know, engage in like dialogues with them and be like, well, you know, but it's also important to show that it's not simple or easy and and that it's something that can be complicated and that's okay too. Are there other people who you think are leading interesting conversations around this idea? I don't think there's enough, frankly. I think that some of the people who are online, you know, body positive types, I think are beginning to sort of 
maybe show a little bit that it's okay to feel different ways about your body. Um, I know that I've liked Katie Storino's Boob Sweat podcast. She Mm -hmm. had an episode with a, I think she's like a a plus size influencer who had lost a lot of weight. And, you know, I think that that is an important conversation and a totally valid one to have and and one that I really hadn't seen before. You know, I think that it's easy for people to feel really apologetic or damning or like they're going to, you know, lose their fans or that they've let people down. And I feel that way too sometimes when I see fat women, you know, online who clearly lost weight. My answer to that would be that if we could all be a little bit more honest about you know, why we're doing things and how we feel, there wouldn't be that sense of like betrayal. Yeah. One of the things I really like that's sort of at the top half of the book is where you set the stage for what, like some of the things that have shaped your eating habits. And you have this line that is just one of my favorite lines in any book that I've read recently. You say, if I had to name my superpower, it would be the ability to identify what I like and do more of it. And like, what a fucking thing to be celebrated, whether it comes (laughs) to food or hobbies or taste, you know, just whatever. And I love that. And I love that take on, that's like part of what what it means sometimes to be like, I'm going to eat like so much of this really good thing right now because I have awesome taste in food. <laughs> and like, I think you and I are both people who are really good at that. I And it comes very naturally to me and probably you too. But I don't think everyone is actually like that. I think some people no. struggle with figuring out what they like or that they feel complicated about what makes them happy. Yeah. I happen to be, I guess, fortunate to be someone who's like, I I love going shopping in Paris. And so I budget, you know, blah, 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 privilege, all those things we're going to say to like <laughs> go shopping in Paris at the sales every year because it brings me such great delight. You know, yeah. like I like to eat at, you know, the Greek restaurant down the street from me and like order from there, I don't know, once a week or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but other people have a much more complicated relationship to yeah. what makes them feel good. And So at least it was important for me to sort of understand that that was something that I do well, that other people sometimes seem, I think, mystified. And I think I've seen people similarly mystified by you in that way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I thought that was just such a beautiful way to look at it and to to, (laughs) celebrate something about it because I think it's really wonderful. On that note, should we talk about some of our favorite snacks? Yeah, what are you what are you snacking on right now? Oh god. I mean, I sort of hate everything right now because mm, it's I just like too. pantry food, you know, like all I want to do is like I obviously rewatched Call Me by Your Name the other night mm-hmm. and was just like because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> you need your comforts right now. I need my comforts and also it's like as close to going on vacation as mm-hmm. you can get, right? And when we left um, that movie in theaters, Thomas was really <laughs> sad because it made him miss like being a teenager in like doing an exchange program in France. And I was like, that's not the takeaway of this <laughs> Also, dude, who did he fall in love with? <laughs> it was his army hammer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but I just found myself obsessing over like all of their like shared meals and also just like all the fresh fruit they were eating. Yeah. And I was like, I would kill for like 
a fucking apricot right now or, or something. A whole, like a whole roasted fish. Yeah. I mean, I agree I'm, that I'm just disappointed in everything right now. Nothing's yeah. really satisfying. I, yeah. Like, yeah. Go, please tell me what you're eating. Well, I was, I ran out of good dark chocolate and I was placing a fresh direct delivery and they don't have any good dark chocolate bars. So I ordered dark chocolate covered graham crackers. And let me tell you, they're hitting the spot. They're really good. I love a dark chocolate covered graham cracker. I like a graham I cracker just, in general. I should get some graham too. crackers with cream cheese. That's mm, good. Yeah. Oh, I sometimes um, will buy stuff for s'mores and then just like light matches yep. and toast. <laughs> I don't, that might be toxic. No, but, I, we used to, um, my brother and I used to do this all the time <laughs> over the stove after school. This yeah, was like over the stove. Snack. Or I'll just like wrap them in foil and you can like bake them, but it's not mm. the same because I like it all sort of You want burnt. the char. Me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know. I, indoor s'more. Let's make it happen. Indoor yeah. s'mores. Indoor s'mores. Yeah. yeah. I think Fresh Direct sometimes sells s'mores kits, but it might be seasonal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this I is also, the season, I think. <laughs> you guys know that there's a shortage of my favorite um, lentil chip flavor, the smoked Gouda. But, I know because oh, I looked yeah. for you when I was at the grocer the other day. <laughs> it was so generous. Well, I found some on Amazon. It had been like going in and out of stock on Amazon, but I had to order a box of eight. What is the shipment in like May? No, it, well, it says it's coming in the next week or so, but it's a box of mm. eight of eight bags of these like giant chip I'm boxes. not worried. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not worried, worried either. <laughs> yeah. This is when I should right. be ordering my favorite regional flavor of Dorito, which is the um, Tapatio flavor, Ooh. which is found in... California, California and the Southwest. Yeah. That sounds um, good. You can you can order like a thing on like mexgrocer.com, but you have to order a lot. But like maybe now's the time. Apparently I need to go to mexgrocer.com. Oh, I think yeah. we You're should have a lot of fun. Yeah. What we should all be doing is buying in bulk our favorite snacks. And then when we can see each other again, we can do a snack exchange. Well, snack I was swap. thinking in mm-hmm. general, like, are we're gonna have to have potlucks when this is all over to deal with all the random stuff that's left over yeah. in our <laughs> pantry. Yeah. Potlucks. I don't know. I feel like I'm just going to, th- I mean, I'm not going to throw it away. Don't like, please yeah. don't, don't <laughs> take that literally, but yeah. I kind of just want to throw it away and just like eat, like, eat out yeah. every day. Exercise all eat of out this every, stuff. I yeah. just want to eat out every day with like 10 people. Yeah. 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 Suddenly you want, you're into the idea of a huge group dinner. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh my God. Just like figuring out how much we all owe and Venmoing sounds so so nice right now. Sounds so good. Uh, Marissa, this has been lovely. Thank you so much for doing this, for writing this terrific book. This is big. Order it now. Put it on your Kindle. I don't know. There's so many. There's an audio book. I managed to record the audio book. I got in right as the lockdown started. Listen to so. the audiobook. This listen is the to answer. The re- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go on a walk, listen to the audiobook, into it. That's yeah, the show. Alone. That's alone. The show. Bye. <laughs> this has been a production of Dear Media. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found, like Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. If you have ideas for the show or want to advertise, email podcast at claireandericka.com. Bye.